Hello and welcome into another episode of Gifted Kid Messy Adult, the podcast where potential went to die. I am your host, Ellie Michaels. I use she, her. I am Jessica Michaels, and today I guess I'm feeling feeling she, her, but maybe a little they, them if you're feeling particularly spicy about things. I guess today we're just talking about ourselves in the show. We are talking about why we decided to record this show and why Gifted Kid Messy Adult is the title that describes both this show and our lives, frankly. So that is that is the point of today. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself first, babe, and then I'll jump in with anything that I feel you uh, forgot because that tends to be my my job. My name's Ellie. I'm a former gifted kid and wildly burned out uh, ADHD-er, probably autistic too in there, just for funsies, married to my co-host for getting on 10 years now, and a giant academic disappointment in general. That's all I got. That's all you got? That's all you got? Okay. I don't know how much is pertinent. What do you like? I like purple. Uh, (laughs) What do you mean by academic disappointment what did that look like for you well naturally i was uh had what you call a spiky profile which means i was exceptionally good at some things uh, academically and just absolute pants at others and was uh you know supposed to be a lot of things you know i'm i'm the joke about the go as a former gifted kid for the halloween party when people ask what you're supposed to be just say i was supposed to be a lot of things were these things that you were going to be or things that people told you you were going to be? Oh, it was all people told me to. I was going to be. I, I would be a great lawyer because they didn't know what lawyers did. I would be a great engineer because they didn't know what engineers did and no one had caught my dysnumeria. I was going to be a great scientist or politician. That, not really super into uh, doing either of those at the moment. Yeah, I kind of wound up being a small time video producer and housewife. Was there anything in there that you wanted to be or you thought? that you were going to go for or was it did you just have no idea it felt like it was my duty to figure out hydrogen fuel cells for hydrogen fuel cell cars because i took a lot of ecology classes and was like wow uh we are pretty screwed and we need to do something other than gas i want to do something that's interesting and novel for a week and then i'm done with it so do this thing for the next 30 years Mm. Well, what about you, darling? Well, we're, we're, who are you and what are you? What were you used to be? I am currently an unemployed or maybe self-employed neurodiversity coach. And I became a neurodiversity coach. So working with people with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, um, adults that are in the professional world. Because when I was in my late 30s, I discovered that I was an adult with ADHD and autism uh, and dyspraxia trying to make my life work in the professional world. I'd always been a smart kid. I was always a smart kid. That was really my thing is that I was smart. I couldn't do a lot of other things like anything related to a gym class or I couldn't make friends. I couldn't do a lot of things, but I knew stuff. And so everybody assumed that I would be okay. And so I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a Supreme Court justice. I was going to be president. I was going to be a history professor. I was going to be lots of things, but I just kept 
mucking stuff up and never managed to do anything. Uh, and then when I started working, that just followed me. I would be smart. I would know the job, but something would cause me to fail. And it was usually something about the way I got along with people or didn't get along with people. And so every couple of years, I would go through a meltdown. Things would come off the wagon in a spectacular way. And I'd have to start over at something. And I just figured it was because I wasn't really smart. You know, maybe everybody thought I was smart. I had fooled everybody into thinking that I was smart, but I was really dumb or that I could do a bunch of these things, but I didn't because clearly the answer was I was lazy. So I was uh -huh. stupid. I was lazy. I just felt like this giant bag of wasted potential. And then in, you know, as I started to figure out that maybe there could be some reason for that. That's when I found out I was autistic and had ADHD, but there weren't any resources. There wasn't anything to help adults that were in my position at all. So I had kind of found my way into becoming a trainer and like a corporate trainer and, and public speaker and coach. And so I just figured, okay, well, I'll learn everything I can about neurodiversity and how to help people since there's nobody doing it. And I guess I'll just have to do it. And so that's what I have been doing. It's kind of funny though, because I help people do all these things, yet still I mess things up on a daily basis. So it matters, I think, because I really want to give people the resources that I wish had been there when I got diagnosed, you know, or all of those times, even before I knew what neurodiversity was, when I felt like I was the biggest piece of dirt on the bottom of somebody's shoe because I was so lazy and so pathetic. I want to let people know that that's not the answer, that it's not even your fault and that there are ways to live your life in a way that makes you happy, even though that may look totally different from anything anybody ever told you, but it's okay. And you're not alone. And it's, it's something that is, um, that is, possible and and you're not a bad person. So what do you think, Ellie? Why, why does this whole thing matter to you? There's a magical thing that happens when you get diagnosed as autistic and ADHD later in life, where you go through and recontextualize everything that's happened in your life and go, oh, that's why. A uh, very similar thing happens when you figure out that you're trans at 34. Suddenly, Everything, well, not quite everything makes sense, but things make a lot more sense. And it, again, yeah, you you stop you stop blaming. Well, you don't stop. You you learn that you don't necessarily need to blame yourself for various shortcomings because that's just how your brain works. You and I were talking about it initially, and you were talking about the lack of resources available. And I kind of tricked you into writing a book where you're just like, "There's no resources. There should be a book." And I'm like, "Well, what would you? What would be in that book if you wanted that? Prefer you know if." If hypothetically you were to write the book, what would it start with? And then what would come after that? And then what would come after that? And then, you know, a day later, I was like, you, so, you know, I just tricked you into writing the outline for a book. You have to write that now. The people that come to you for help are just as desperate and confused as we were. 
uh, if not more so. You mentioned the book. I think most people don't get tricked into writing books. I think that's something that is probably unique about, about us. It goes to your Svengali-like ability to get people to do things that are good for themselves. And my inability to notice details like, oh, I think we're actually writing an outline right now. The book is right now, the the almost certainly final title is One Size Fits Nobody uh, or One Size Fits No One. And it is an introduction and a guide to neurodiversity at work for both people who are neurodivergent and are working and for managers and for other people who work with neurodivergent folks to start to break down some of the practical things that get in the way of everybody working together well. And that will be out uh, by February of next year. So it's both getting close and exceptionally far away. Neurodiversity word we've used a few times now, that's basically just the idea that everybody has a different brain, all of us in the world. So if you think about it, like uh, if you think about phones, like cell phones, uh, even though I'm old and apparently I'm still the, the only one in the world who still calls it cell phones. But if you think of all the phones in the world, they all have basically the same shape. They all do basically the same things. You can talk and you can text, even though I haven't talked on the phone since about the year 2000, but it apparently can still do that. You can download yeah. apps, whatever. Yeah, but phones, you gotta do about the same thing. So everybody's brain in the world, those are like all the phones in the world. That's what neurodiversity is. They're all a bunch of phones and they're all a little bit different. But within the set of phones, right, you have Android and you have iPhone. That's like breaking the brains down into two big categories, which is neurotypical, which is kind of the majority, like 70 to 80% of the brains in the world are neurotypical. They operate the same way. That's like your iPhones, right? That's just the majority of phones in the world are iPhones and people can use them however they want, but they're still iPhones. But then you have that smaller group, the Android phones, that's your neurodivergent group of people. So those are people whose brains do things a little bit differently. They operate similarly to each other, but different from the majority. So your people with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, being gifted, um, anything that affects the way your brain processes information can be part of that neurodivergent group. It's just different from the majority. So how that Android group of phones gets things done looks different than the rest of the phones out there that are iPhones. And so the reason that that is important is because iPhones came first, right, to the market. And so that's sort of what people took as the baseline, right? is everybody's phone should operate like this iPhone. Everybody's brain operates like this. And it doesn't mean it's better. It really doesn't even mean it's the standard. It just means it got there first. So we built all of society expecting that everybody's brain was going to operate this one way. But that's not true. And we're finding out that even more and more 
there are people whose brains are like those androids. They're capable of amazing things, but because they do it differently, people think they're crap or people think they're bad or they're worse than the neurotypical. They're worse than that standard. But really the reality is those brains are capable of doing some of the most amazing things. Like if you think of athletes like Simone Biles, she has ADHD. Uh, so does Michael Phelps, uh, who was a swimmer who set, you know, just absolutely tons and tons of Olympic swimming records. If you think of actors like um, Brad Pitt or Sir Anthony Hopkins, if you think of, um, you know, some of the, the greatest thinkers in the world, artists in the world, these people whose brains are obviously on a different plane than most of the, you know, most of the the normal people, right? Most of kind of what we would consider the standard. And what sucks is that the world just isn't set up to deal with people on those extremes because you mentioned having a spiky profile earlier. What that means is for a good portion of the world, they have talents that are beyond sometimes what we can even comprehend. You know, people who can play 10 musical instruments or just have wildly disparate amounts of talent compared to the rest of us. But what they also have that people don't talk about is if you've got talents that are over the limit, you probably also have deficits or difficulties or challenges or opportunities, as we would say in the business world, that are also as bad as those talents are good. And that means, you know, those could be things like you might be somebody who is the best nuclear physicist in the world, but if somebody wasn't there to remind you, you would wear the same clothes every single day until they literally fell off your body and you wouldn't ever remember to shower. Or you would be somebody who maybe can play 10 musical instruments, but doesn't eat because you just forget because it just doesn't occur to you that you need to eat. And the world isn't set up to deal with either of those extremes, right? It's everybody's just sort of expected to be in this middle. And that's how business is set up. That's how all of the the corporate world is set up. That's how businesses hire is they expect that people who are pretty good, we're going to hire you to answer phones. But one day, if we want you to file, you can probably do that too. And then if we want you to be like an account manager, you can probably do that too. They just assume that people are kind of plug and play. If you're good at one thing, you can do other things. They don't account for these amazing, talented people who can problem solve and who can see patterns in data and who are insanely creative, but also probably can't handle a lot of typed correspondence with people or can't do certain things. Like the world is just not set up to deal with those brains, but there are more of those brains than we thought. And so we're trying to change the world in getting people to recognize these brains exist. Let the people that have those brains know that like, it's okay. You can be wildly successful and a screw up at the same time. And it's not your fault, but also help everybody else learn to live and work with people who have those brains also. Yeah. So it's a lot. And so this podcast is one of the tools that we're using to to do that, but no pressure, no pressure at all. 
we're just gonna change the world we're just gonna change the world Ellie, when think about changing the world, and you, I think, mentioned specifically that you were neurodivergent. When did that realization happen for you? What What did that look like? Uh, feel like about two hours after you found out, because <laughs> because uh, you went and got like an actual diagnosis and like took tests and diagnostics and whatever, and all of those diagnostics came back as like you are hella autistic. And then we were talking about it and we share just about all of those traits. So then I took the same tests and I got the same results. Um, I haven't gotten an official diagnosis because it's expensive and difficult and I don't actually need it. And in some parts of the world, uh, an autism diagnosis is used as a reason to refuse people gender affirming care, which is hilarious because there's like a solid 70% overlap between neurodivergent and genderqueer of some variety. Um, if you know a trans person, they're almost certainly <laughs> neurodivergent, which also does not help. Um, but yeah, no, it was always a case of like, I am very, very good at that thing. And then absolute crap at a whole bunch of other things. Like I can't schedule to save my life. Paperwork gives me a, a paperwork gives me a whole lot of stress. Um, but if I watch you build something or do something once or twice, I will be able to do that for the rest of my life. I took up baking as a hobby thinking it was too complicated. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, oh yeah, no, you can improvise and just throw in like this ratio and that and that and that. And here, look, you got bread now. And I'm told that's not normal. <laughs> no, it is It is not. It is not in fact normal uh, to do all of the things that you can do. It makes it really fun to watch and to live with you. I like learning how to do new things, but then I forget that I could do those other things. You have a handful of dishes that you can't order at restaurants or anywhere because I spent a month perfecting that dish once. And now mine is the best Brussels sprouts that you can get. But then I forget that those exist for six months and you go, hey, we should have Brussels sprouts. And I go, yeah, we should have Brussels sprouts. And then we eat nothing but Brussels sprouts <laughs> for <laughs> like eight weeks. Bad. We just, you know, regularly a couple times a week because I want to make sure I'm still good at that. See if I can try some other stuff in it. When you found out that you were neurodivergent how did that make you feel when you really just kind of understood what that really meant I've always been kind of an outsider and I've always been pretty weird so getting like an official stamp that says you're weird and an outsider on like a molecular level is like like you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, doc, I feel like a weird outcast and I don't really belong anywhere. And they run a bunch of tests and they go, hey, good news. On a biochemical level, you're actually weird and don't belong anywhere. It wasn't that big. It kind of made sense. And it's been an ongoing thing where like I always had trouble when I was you know, a kid in school, or whatever, where I didn't show my work. You have to show your work and blah, 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 especially with math stuff. And I would screw it up or I wouldn't. And no one could figure out why. If I showed my work, I had problems. If I didn't show my work, I had problems. And then over the past like six months, I've noticed I have freaking dysnumeria. It's like dyslexia, but for numbers. So we were at that concert walking around looking for like section 238 or something. And we walked past 228 and I went, oh, there's us. Because in my head, the, sh the three just shifted into a two. It's not that I didn't remember it. It's that it changed in my memory, in my working memory. As nice of an explanation as it is, it's also nice to be aware of those kind of limitations. 
So now I just know like if there's an important number, if there's a dosage on something, I'm going to ask three times. And I'm going to tell the doctor, I have dysnumeria. I'm going to run this past you a couple of times. Sorry if it's annoying, but I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the most important part of all of this is that once you know, it doesn't change the fact that you're playing on hard mode. But now you know you're on hard mode and you go, oh, I should slow down and use every health pack I can find and do, you know, set up some systems and compensate for having a brain that's not built for this stupid reality. <laughs> but I have to use it anyway. I don't know. What, what about you? How did how did your diagnosis make you feel rather validated if memory serves? Yeah, I think, you know, it was because I had always had this pattern at jobs of I whatever the job was I could do it whatever the task was I could do that and whatever list you could be on whether it was oh you make this the highest number of phone calls or you have this many sales or whatever it is I would just target that list and make sure that I was at the top of it because then I knew I was doing well and that was how I would do the job. And eventually, though, I would get to a point where I had done that for a while and it would be time to be promoted. And either I wouldn't get promoted because the idea of me managing people made others threaten to quit, which happened a couple of times, or <laughs> I would get promoted and I would have this you know, one experience of what that was like and what I was trying to do. But then when you would talk to people who worked for me, the way they described, you know, working for this tyrant, it sounded like we were describing working at two different companies. And I just didn't get it. Like they would say, oh, Jessica's not supportive. And I like lived and died by the success of my people. I wanted nothing more than for them to be successful. Um, or they would say, oh, we don't want to bring ideas to Jessica because she's defensive. But I didn't feel that way. So there was always this disconnect between what I was putting out into the world and how people assumed I felt about things and, and what I actually felt. And it was just, it made it, really hard you know so I had to figure out like okay you know this happened when I was 20 okay well nobody should be a manager when they're 20 that's just you don't know anything when you're 20 but yeah. then it happened when I was 25 it happened when I was 30 it happened when I was you know 36 and so it was like okay well either this is as far as my career goes and I'm never going to make any more money I'm never going to be any more successful than just this base level, entry level employment, or I can figure out what is going on because clearly at this point, it's me. It, it just sure. obviously is. So that's when I went to the psychologist. Once I got this diagnosis and I read through somebody's observation of me, that was really trippy because that's when it would say things like, Jessica only has one smile. She doesn't smile naturally and she doesn't have different smiles for different situations, which apparently people do, but I did it. And they said I, it was clear that I would occasionally remember to smile or know that it was my time to smile. 
and I would smile. But other than that, I was totally flat. Unless I talked about you, uh, Ellie, then I had a genuine smile. What's well, the most delight? And you are a delight. So it was just really interesting to see that as good as I thought I was at humaning and putting on kind of a customer service personality, these people saw right through it, you know, that I didn't have conversation naturally or I didn't um, participate or react differently based upon what the person in conversation with me was thinking or feeling or saying unless they gave me very clear stated cues it, it was it was really fascinating and once I started digging into what all of that meant what neurodiversity meant I just sort of looked at my whole life and it was like well now that makes sense everything makes sense now what all of those dumb things I did now I know why I did them or why I crashed this hard out of college or Whatever it was, all of these things had a reason. But silly me, I thought that was an end, right? Like I thought there was a pill or a huh? cream or something that could take care of it. Now I know that there's nothing wrong with having a brain that operates differently. So there isn't anything to to cure necessarily in my case, but that it's um, still something I have to figure out how to deal with. And so that's really been what this last, you know, several, many years has been has been like. Yeah, I think we both have a lot of reasons for ourselves for wanting to do this and, and work through this and kind of help people. But one of the things that we've both talked about really wanting to do is help people who aren't neurodivergent understand what being neurodivergent is like and kind of why we are the way they are. Why do you think it is important that that is something that we we take on, Ellie? Being neurodivergent is lonely. And it's one of the main things that I learned from this entire experience and I want other people to learn. Specifically, I want neurodivergent people to learn that neurotypical and neurotypical communication works fairly well. Neurotypical and neurodivergent communication, there's a gap. But neurodivergent to neurodivergent communication is like all of a sudden you're meeting someone who speaks your native language for the first time in your life and you're 28. Uh, when you and I met, it was literally weeks of going, oh my God, we have that in common too? Wow. And that kind of isolation, that sense of no one getting it. It's it's crushing. I mean, the worst thing you could do to a prisoner is put him in solitary isolation. Like, we're humans. We need other humans around. And I want neurotypical people to understand that neurodivergent people are kind of lonely. And I want neurodivergent people to know that other neurodivergent people are really great to be friends with. Because at last in your life, you'll find someone who's running on your same operating system, who speaks your same language. Um, and it's the, it's the same with trans stuff. Just once you have people in your life who share your baseline reality is life-changing. And I don't want anybody to go through another minute of their lives, not feeling like they belong or feeling like they are completely isolated in the world. when it's just like, oh yeah, no, there's like a solid 20% of the population. That's us kind of like this. And it just really has never come up much in any of the diversity stuff that I've learned about. And 
yeah, no, we need to know that we're out there and neurotypical people need to know that we're also out there and maybe we're not trying to be annoying on purpose. <laughs> we're not trying to be exclusionary or standoffish. I mean, you get you get stuff on like all of your uh, reviews are like, oh, she's unfriendly and doesn't communicate. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like the most emotionally communicative person I know. But then I jump back to when, you know, right after we first got together, you had a minor surgery and I would tell you a joke and you couldn't laugh because it would hurt. But I could hear the little pop that it made, the little pop noise that your lips made when you smiled. I don't know if that's even been picked up, but I could hear that while I was driving. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's like a laugh. I get it. Neurodivergent people are very in tune with each other and can pick up on it. And neurodivergent people or <laughs> neurotypical people tend not to pick up on that kind of stuff. And a little bit of training and a little bit of extra attention. And all of a sudden that person who seems really cold and standoffish is actually really warm and friendly. You're just not reading the signals in the way that they're putting them out. What What do you want the, the neurotypicals to understand about us? I think that for a lot of people, whenever, because I give, I give talks and I do sessions with companies, you know, all over the world and they, there always is someone who comes up afterwards and said, says, this is the first time I've heard about any of this, uh -huh. but this is me. This describes me, or this describes my son, or this describes my wife, or this describes, you know, I'm looking at all of the people across my career that I've hired and fired. And now I know that I failed some of them. When people learn more about neurodiversity, they see connections and they see things about people that they've known their whole lives, but just haven't ever understood. And so it's important to me to get this information out there, even to people who don't think they need it, because even if they personally don't, someone in their life does. And mm -hmm. so it just helps spread understanding and awareness and acceptance we can't be it, it can't just be the people in the community that are educators and that scream about their needs because you're also trying to live your life and also trying to meet your own needs we need other people to to know what's happening and to spread the word and to be more understanding. So the more that we can communicate about this, I think the better for everybody. Most of us don't go through our lives wanting to be jerks and wanting to be exclusionary uh, or discriminatory, but most people don't know about this. And so I think we uh -huh. can just make the world better. God, that's so hokey. That is so cheesy. Well, no, no. Oh my God. Straight, straight up. Our friend Raven, uh, very autistic, delightful person, was very, very close with her grandfather. And her grandfather in his day was diagnosed as schizophrenic. And to this day, she is absolutely 100% certain he was not schizophrenic. He was neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. And she's gone through the tests that he took and the answers that he gave. And it's stuff like, do you hear things that other people don't seem to hear? Well, I'm autistic and I have insanely acute hearing. I can hear when your phone is done charging from across the room because the brick makes a different whine and all kinds of this other stuff. And so this dude got treated like a schizophrenic his entire life and was on medication he probably shouldn't have been on. 
and had all kinds of effects when really it was just, oh, you're you're autistic. That's all that is. And if the normies don't know about that, the normies tend to run everything. So we need to make sure that people know that this is a thing so that you don't get misdiagnosed for your entire life. No, it's true. So we got a lot to do, but I think, you know, we can do it and we can crack some jokes along the way and, and it'll be it'll be a fun time. So I think if people right now want to find us, the best way to do that is through my website at www.coachjessicamichaels.com. Come visit my website. You can reach out to me. You can request a free coaching session uh, and you can talk to us about the show. I think that is going to wrap it up for us here today. Ellie, anything else you want to add at the end here? No, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing this project and uh, changing the world one neurodivergent and two neurotypicals at a time. <laughs>